the idea that if you intentionally have conversations with your kids, and it's not just as a high school senior, right? It can't be a Hail Mary like that. But babies, you talk to parents about this all the time, the importance of communicating with your children. But elementary school, middle school, as horrible as that is, high school, just lean into them and be so intentional about communicating. One of the things that I tell young dads now is it's really easy to sort of just say, love you, or heart symbol, or whatever it is. I'm like, no, 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 that is not enough. Literally say, I love you. There's a wild difference between love you and I love you. And, and the intentionality of language and what comes from that is so important. And, and I think that's the key as parents, as colleagues, as caregivers in a hospital, that you be intentional about what's important and then how you say it. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again today. Well, today I have another wonderful guest. He's someone who's doing great things in the healthcare field, and more importantly, like so many of our other guests, has a great story to tell. And so often these things go hand in hand. Today, my guest is Jeff Atwood. Jeff is a healthcare leader and author and a speaker. He has more than 25 years of healthcare leadership, marketing, and storytelling experience. Jeff speaks to and consults with healthcare and community groups nationally, sharing insights and encouragement found at the crossroads between his two decades serving healthcare organizations while concurrently raising a daughter with significant health and developmental challenges, as you'll hear his story. His books have been published by Simon & Schuster, Random House, and Harvest. His latest title is Need to Know for Graduates, released earlier this year, which we'll talk about more today. Welcome, Jeff, and thank you so much for being here. This is a long time coming. We've had to reschedule this a couple times because of different reasons. I'm so excited that we're finally able to get this going, and I can't wait for the audience to hear this. Thanks, Tony. Good to talk with you. Yes. I think we had to change or reschedule a couple times with my move, and so this is a, it was a long time coming. The first time we spoke was several months ago, although we did know each other through the Gratitude Symposium, so I'm glad it's finally happened, and so thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's fun to make that connection. Glad you're getting settled. In your new world. <laughs> yes, it's, <laughs> it's going to take some time, but it's okay. So I'm in kind of a makeshift studio today. Jeff, I always start here because, you know, I'm a big believer in the personal side of healthcare. I'm a big believer in making the human connection with people. And you have so many great stories that I've heard you tell before about the human connection. So I always really like my audience to get the human connection from the person that they're hearing. Just tell us about yourself and how, as we say in this podcast, how you got to the pinnacle of your career about being on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. I'm glad to finally yeah. achieve you, it. You're done now. You can okay. retire. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. <laughs> no, 
ended up in healthcare by accident. Really did. I'm a marketer and a communicator and writer by background and was doing that for a while in Nashville and was a partner in that agency. And we just started to do some work with a hospital company here in town. And I thought that was sort of interesting. I had spent the better part of my career doing anything from selling banks to lawnmowers to horse clippers to anything. It's fun to be creative. It's fun to find interesting ways to tell stories that cause people to do things in a capital sort of way. The hospital thing was intriguing to me. And so that was, began to do some of that work and begin to spend time in hospitals. Almost concurrent to that, our first daughter was born. Madison is our oldest. She's 26 now. When she was born, a typical child. And then when she was just short of being six months old, she got bacterial meningitis from her first year infection, which is wildly, wildly unlikely as we've learned. And and so because of the meningitis and the effects to her brain and the illness and all that sort of thing, it was becoming apparently really clear to us that she was going to have a raft of challenges through her life. And so kind of as all that was playing out, a friend of mine who was at one of these healthcare companies called me and said, hey, why don't you come over here and join us? And I was like, I'm not a hospital guy. I'm a marketer. He's like, I think you're meant for this right now. And as fate would have it, he was exactly right. Because when I got the healthcare company and and we owned hospitals across the country and I got to spend time there and go, that this is really, really meaningful work. Not to say that marketing communications is not meaningful, but when you get a chance to tell the stories of people who are doing truly heroic work, amazing work, saving lives and birthing babies and all the things that happen in healthcare systems, it was like, I need to be part of this because this is something that is meaningful and sturdy and advances world, not just sells a lawnmower. So much of who we are comes from really our past and our experiences. You know, I've spoken about my childhood epilepsy that really probably in retrospect, without me knowing it, pushed me into healthcare. I always think of life as like, we're just kind of riding and someone else is driving the car. And so if it weren't for Madison though, was it that you saw things that were good and things that needed help? You think you'd be in healthcare if it weren't for that? I think I saw them differently, Tony. I think I really did. I think I had never really had an opportunity to sort of see what the healthcare system was like and what it meant and the impact that it could have. And and as we spent time with her when she was critically ill as a six-month-old, and then you mentioned epilepsy, she's had a horrible seizure disorder her entire life. And so we spent a lot of time with neurologists and neurosurgeons and kind of all around that and all the testing that can come with that. And then just the developmental challenges. And so we've had the opportunity to sort of touch almost every part of the healthcare system as parents. You don't think you're going to do that as a parent. You have your first child. And I was just talking with a friend about this earlier today. When you have that first child, you immediately get this slideshow in your head of all the things that are going to happen. First birthday and riding a bike and going to kindergarten and all these sort of things. And you just sort of see them in your head, even if you don't articulate them, you know, kind of what is expected. And then when you have a situation like ours, I would assume like yours too with the epilepsy, where that's twisted on its head, you begin to think of things differently and go, huh, there may be more to this than I expected and what I've seen. And really, I think is the ability to be part of something that was meaningful to other people's really became important to me. You and I became friends and got to know each other when we were both involved in the Gratitude Symposium with Quint Studer. Quint's a good friend to you and to me and someone that I look up to. When Quint asked me to be a speaker on the Gratitude Symposium, I was honored. But the real honor came 
when he asked me back the second year, because that's, I think, how you know how you did. Because when he asked me back, I was really over the moon. And you've done some speeches for him and you work with him. It's all about the gratitude of, you said it from the very beginning, you're watching nurses and doctors and healthcare professionals and even valet guys doing extraordinary work. And it's often not appreciated. But So tell me about the Gratitude Symposium. Tell me about your thoughts about the healthcare professionals. I think, Tony, the thing that has been the most amazing to us is to see that it's not just the clinical teams that are impactful in healthcare. One of the favorite stories, and actually you mentioned Quinn a second ago, Quinn used it in his book, The Calling, was there's a story when Madison was critically ill when she was young, and I was walking kind of in and out of the hospital at different times to catch my breath or to go to the car. And the guy who was a parking lot attendant at Vanderbilt saw me walking out one day, and he sort of waved me over and said, come here, come here, come here. And I walked over, and now I didn't know this guy. He didn't know me. He'd probably seen me walk out a couple of times. He goes, I can just tell that you're having a hard time right now. And I'm like, you're exactly right. My daughter's critically ill. He goes, let me just tell you this. I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you. And that was it. That's all he said. And then he kind of went back to his business. And that's not in his job description. There's nobody at Vanderbilt who would say, Mr. Parking Lot Attendant Guy, here's your responsibilities. Collect the money, park the cars, keep us safe. Oh, and make sure that you (laughs) interact in this very intensely personal way with this person. That's how the healthcare community is wired. We talk about gratitude and I think there's so much to be thankful for. I know our family has seen over and over and over again, the impact of folks who have gone out of their way to make our lives better. Yeah. The two two things come to mind when you tell that story. I always talk about healthcare being like baseball. People get up at the plate one at a time. The valet person made an impression on you, how the receptionist treats you, how the security guard going up to the elevator. It's not just the nurses and doctors. In any way along that patient experience, someone could hit into a double play just to keep using the baseball analogy. And so that's one thing that in order to really provide care to human beings is really about a teamwork. It's baseball. Secondly, I think of, and I've mentioned this on podcasts before, It's a lecture by Rabbi Kushner, and people have heard me talk about him all the time. He wrote the book, Bad Things Happen to Good People, but his lecture, if you've never seen it, it's very old. He's in his 60s. He's sweating profusely. He's got a real skinny tie on, but he talks about his faith and how it was challenged when he had a child who had a tragic illness. And in the end, he tells his conclusion when he was doubting God was that God sends us people. And that's what he does, that he may not cure all diseases but he will always send people. And there's that old joke about the guy who falls over the boat. Nobody, he's like, God will help me. And God says, I sent you three men to pick you out of, you know, out of the water. And so- I sent you the helicopter and I sent the boat and I said all this. And it's like, well, why didn't you rescue what else me? And it's like, do? what am I supposed to do? And I think that's the thing. When our healthcare system works at its best, it's when we get to the humanity of it. It's super easy and I've done it is you tend to look at these metrics and here's a DRG or here's another surgery, here's an add-on, here's this or that and all the other thing. And you lose sight of the humanity of it. When Madison was young and very ill, she had been in the ICU on a vent for days and days and days. And then they moved her off the vent into a room by herself because they were still not 100% sure about what the bug was that had called the meningitis. And so my wife was expecting at this point. So we clearly had a lot going on in our lives. So she was back at the Ronald McDonald House resting. I went to the hospital that day to go find Madison. I walked into the PICU and she was not there. And they said, 
okay, she's around the corner down the hall. And so I walked around the corner down the hall and I peeked in the room and I saw the bed sitting there and there was nobody in the bed. And my heart dropped because I knew what that meant in the vernacular of the PICU. And then I looked across the room and I saw a woman in a chair, in a rocking chair, holding my daughter, rocking. And I was furious, furious because I peeked in the window and all I could see of the woman's name tag was the word student at the bottom. I ran back to the nurse's station, found the attending physician, who, by the way, this was the woman who was instrumental in saving my daughter's life a week before. I mean, this woman did crazy, amazing things. I went up to her and I was screaming at this woman, literally complete come apart, screaming at her. Why is this woman holding my daughter? And she looks at me very calmly and just says, why don't you ask her? I do not need this sort of sanity right now, okay? Please understand my rage. I stormed back to the room. I got ready to walk in the door. I saw the woman hold my daughter in the corner. She moved again and I saw the bottom of her name badge. This time I saw it said Masters of Nursing Student. All right, slow your roll here a little bit. This is not a candy striper on her first day. I opened the door in the most accusatory way I could ever say it. Why are you holding my daughter? And she looked up at me and she said, because she was crying. And it was just like, I mean, what do I say at that point? She's just doing exactly what my daughter needed. Again, just like the story before, there's nothing in a manual that says, hold the crying baby. I mean, frankly, this is 25 years ago. So we probably wouldn't do that today, right? Somebody from risk management or somebody would come and say, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, got to have the baby with the guardrail and the whole thing, whatever it is. But she saw my daughter, she saw her distress. And she held her. And I think that's the opportunity that we have, Tony, if we fully lean into all of this and embrace it and understand that these are not DRGs or add-on surgeries or another case or someone in the ER or a frequent flyer, whatever the case is, these are human beings. And we have a responsibility to be human beings, caring for human beings. People don't go into medicine for money or fame or whatever. It's rare. People go into medicine because they want to help people and they get lost around maybe during their trail with a lot of the task-oriented people. I talk about it all the time where you just get all this pressure, but they're good people. I can tell you in the neonatal intensive care unit, I've never seen a baby die alone. Never. 27 years working in the busiest NICU in the world, there's sometimes, sadly, a baby will get sick very quickly, become critical. It becomes evident that the baby's dying. We're calling the parents, having the parents giving them the bad news, telling them they need to come in. Sometimes parents don't live close by. Almost 100% of the time, Jeff, a nurse will pick that baby up, sit on the rocking chair, and love that baby until the mother gets there. And it's choking me up just saying it. These are amazing people. I'm getting chills hearing you say it. I saw it in the PICU. And it works on the other end of the spectrum, too, with older adults. I mean, it's amazing the work that gets done in hospice Mm -hmm. and home health in some of those places. There are no victories in those units. I mean, there are sometimes victories in the NICU or in the PICU or in Pete's cancer, some of those places. In home health and hospice, there are no victories. No one's going to recover. It's just the nature of where it is. And yet the inherent kindness of people to be respectful and honoring is remarkable. It's truly remarkable. And that's the good side of medicine. The bad side of medicine is these great, wonderful people get really caught up in being overwhelmed, overworked. COVID only really illuminated what we already knew before. 
I have a whole big thing about just people acting contrary to their beliefs and core values. And this is where burnout comes from is these great, wonderful people are being pushed to do more and more things. And they know that that's not what they want. And so there's that other side of medicine. And I do my best. You know, one thing I've done for years, and it's a little thing, but it means a lot. If a nurse calls me up and says the baby in 27 is having trouble breathing, 100% of the time I will say, can you please tell me the baby's name? And I think that just sheds a little light on like, I'm reminding you that you're becoming task oriented. You've been here for three hours, but you're remembering. And so it's a message. You're a healthcare leader. What's the answer to this? And if there isn't an answer that we can bring out the beauty in medicine even more. It sounds wildly simple, but we just have to tell stories like that, Tony. I think we get so caught up. I was talking with a friend of mine who works at an emergency company that staffs emergency physicians and hospitalists. And he's like, we're having trouble telling our story. I go, dude, you literally save lives for a living. Show me anywhere else on the planet where someone can say they save lives every day. You do this every day. Tell that story. I mean, it's just like with your kids. When you tell your kids the good things about them, they hear that and they remember that and they become that. We have to be better in the healthcare world of telling our teams and our colleagues and our associates about the good, miraculous, amazing things they do. And truly is the more we focus on telling the stories of the good that is happening, it is not going to fix all the problems we have. It's not. I'm a marketer. I'm a communicator. My solution to everything is to tell the stories, right? But if we don't do that, then we will become crushed. Just like you were talking about with that example, the baby in 27. Just use the baby's name. I think that's a great illustration. How do we bring the humanity back to it? We've allowed everything to chase the humanity out. That's not why we're here. That's what results in that conflict you're talking about. And so I think the more that we can focus on identifying great things that are happening, because here's the thing, they're happening, right? I mean, when we celebrate nurses and physicians and you say, hey, Dr. Smith or Nurse Jones, we want to salute you for what you did. They're like, ah, it's just what I do every day. That's just where they go. And even so, we have a responsibility to them and their profession and the care they give and say, you know, no, 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 this is a big deal. And I want you to know it's a big deal. And I'm going to be very intentional, just like with your illustration. I'm going to be very intentional. I'm not going to say, nurse, you call me and this, let me explain to you what you did wrong here on it. You're not going to do that. But just that slight, slight adjustment in how you approach it changes everything. Wow. If Susie or Johnny in 27 is struggling, that makes it more important to me as a human being instead of, hey, just the kid in 27. It really does. I love what you said about acknowledging when people do good things because, and they're not always, I saved that life. I did CPR. It could be the valet guy getting acknowledgement for what he said and how much of an impact all these years later, she's 20, how old is Madison now? Madison's 26. Yeah. 26 years ago. And you're still talking about this amazing person. I do a program called it's all in the delivery. And part of that program, after we do training of everyone on patient experiences, we give out hundreds of stickers on the floor. And anyone, no matter what your level is, can give a sticker to anyone when they happen to see something that's good, especially if it comes to communication. Jeff, it is amazing. No matter how old you are, no matter how high up on the chain, when somebody gives you a sticker, 
I've seen chairman of departments get a sticker and be so excited putting on his door. I guarantee, I mean, I you know, guarantee people, you, a, a, the chairman of medicine or the head of surgery or the hospital CEO or whomever, you give them a dang sticker and say, you did a great job. I mean, we all become four years old, right? Exactly. And they want to hear it. They should hear it. They should hear that they are doing work that's meaningful and is changing lives and it's making a difference. And even if they get their butts kicked for the other 23 hours on their shift or whatever the case may be, they still know that, you know what, at least for one moment, I did something that was meaningful. You got to start somewhere, right? If we could fix healthcare on this conversation, man, it would be awesome, but we can't. Let's just start by telling somebody how much we appreciate them. Exactly. And give a sticker for something little. Dr. Orsini, I noticed you sat down and talked to that parent and held their hand. Get a sticker. Stickers are great. And go home and tell your wife, I got a sticker. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guarantee you, you know, in my fifties and when I get a note in the mail from a colleague or from somebody that I held or from a publisher or something, that thing goes on the refrigerator like I was in kindergarten. I mean, my wife was like, seriously, I mean, do we need to get you more stickers or something? Because I'm like, no, 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 it's cool. But I got these right here. I don't see your stickers. That's so funny. It it really is truly a team. I'll tell you a quick story about Julio. Julio was a housekeeper in their neonatal intensive care unit, the unit that I worked in New Jersey. And Julio cleaned in the NICU, loved being in the NICU. He was there for 15 years. And when Julio retired, our group gave Julio a retirement dinner. He was part of our family. And I'll never forget our senior partner introduced him to give a little bit of speech. And Julio said how amazing his job was because he saved lives every day. Because if he didn't clean the isolate or the incubator well enough, the baby can get an infection. And he was saving lives. And you know what, Jeff? That hit me. That this wasn't just a housekeeping job for Julio. He was saving lives. And he was. Absolutely. And I think that's the opportunity we all have is to remind people that the work they do is good and holy and important. I think about this. So Madison, when she was 19, she was having catastrophic seizures and the point where they would kill her. And so she had to have this significant surgery called the corpus callosotomy where they essentially separated the two halves of her brain. And she had to relearn everything. Well, she was really, really, really slow to come out of anesthesia from this. And and really, it took her days to even really kind of fully wake up. So I was talking to a friend of mine the day after the surgery, you know, as a parent. I mean, we had to make a decision on the surgery, but there really wasn't a choice, right? I mean, we could have said no, and one of those seizures would have killed her. So we said yes. And so she doesn't wake up from the surgery for 48 hours. I'm convinced that the decision I made made things worse, not better. And so I'm walking in the hallway outside of the ICU where she was, and I'm just walking and walking and walking. I'm on my phone and I'm talking with a friend, telling him I have made it worse. And so we hang up and then I notice somehow at some point, this guy from EBS was literally just walking the hallway with me. I don't know where he came from. I mean, he did not say one word. He put his arm on my shoulder a couple of times when it was clear I was really, really struggling. And we just walked up and down that hallway 10 or 15 minutes. And then kind of when I'd caught my composure again, he went and grabbed his things and moved on through his day. But the ability, that's the opportunity we have as leaders is to create a culture where that's acceptable, right? That was unproductive 
work. He wasn't cleaning a room or cleaning a floor or whatever it was. So in terms of productivity and efficiency as a DBS person, that was unproductive time. As a human being, it's the most productive thing he did. I don't know, certainly that day. And as a leader, if you go and give that gentleman a sticker or a pat on the back and said, I saw you walking with uh, Mr. Atwood. That was an amazing thing that you were doing. And, and just pat him on the back. You're reinforcing that this is the kind of culture that we want. That's right. Yeah. Our responsibility as leaders is to create cultures where that can happen, where humanity can happen. Instead of going, oh, I'm sorry, you're over by 0.7643 on this particular thing. Go clean rooms faster and just let that man wander the hallways completely falling apart by himself. The opportunity we have as leaders is to lean into that humanity and create the culture where the good is celebrated and where the humanity is celebrated. Well, that's the teaser right there, Jeff. That just summarizes everything that is all about what's Mm. good in medicine and our first major step to stick. And that's why I'm such a fan of yours and Quince and people who are working really hard to make a difference. And I see improvement. I think we're getting there. We really are. I think we're realizing that it's important. I think we're realizing that mental health and leaning in to being human and all those sort of things are important. And and we lost that, I think. We lost it. And then COVID came and just crushed all of it. And now as I talk to different organizations, you know, I'm going to speak with some nurses in the Midwest in October, and we were talking about the theme this week. And the idea is replenishment. We have to replenish these folks and help them be able to care for people who are sick. And I think that we've identified the problem. We haven't fixed it, certainly. But first, you have to admit you have a problem, right? And I think maybe we've done that. Well, people like you and Quint and other people are really making a dent. So thank you so much for doing all that. In our last 10 or 15 minutes, I want to talk about your book because I love your latest book. Is this your fifth book? It's the third in this series. I've written some others, but this is the third in this series, it's called, it's a need to know series. And the whole thing began a few years ago when our middle daughter, we have three daughters. Madison is the oldest. Mackenzie is in the middle. She's got a great career in animation, the voice acting in California. And then our youngest is Macy, who's an equestrian and has just made it a career to say, there's a 1500 pound animal. I think I need to put him way up in the air and go really fast while I'm doing that. So she's got a 24 seven connection to North Peak certain. So that's, (laughs) but it's, when Mackenzie was a senior in high school, beginning her senior year in high school, I got really nervous about it. I was like, this is sort of where the rubber meets the road in terms of parenting. We've got her for another year. This is your first one leaving the house. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, Madison would always do this. This is the first one to leave the house. And it's like, does she know what she needs to know? And so what I did was every day of her senior year of high school, I sent her a text and said, Mackenzie, this is something I think you need to know. And some of them were like, dad loves you. Just know that dad loves you. And others were pieces of advice and things you have to know for a career and that sort of thing. And so it was like, huh, that's a good idea. Maybe I could give more advice to other people. So we found a publisher. We did the need to know for newlyweds and for new parents because those are people who are looking for something solid or hopefully we've been married 30 years. So we've learned something and we have three children who are speaking to us. So that's part of that. But need to know for graduates was truly just advice and things that I think are important for parents to, to tell their kids. I mean, it's really that simple. We talked about being intentional in conversations with employees or colleagues and that sort of thing. I think we have to be very intentional in our conversations with our kids. And it's easy 
to lose sight of that, Tony. It's easy to sort of go, oh, you know, it's tough and they're busy and they have their phones and their things and all this sort of thing. But your job as a parent, as a leader in your family, you have to be intentional about how you communicate with your kids. Everyone lives and dies with their phone. So the method that I chose was to send her a text. I love that. The other thing is we think that while our kids are teenagers, they're not listening. But you find out when they're in their 20s that they actually were listening. And of course, it wasn't a couple of years ago, we're sitting around a Thanksgiving table and my kids start, I have three kids and they're busting on me basically and calling daddyisms and all the things that dads say. But what came out of that was, holy crap, they've been listening. And so they're actually saying, and, and I'm blessed. I got three good kids. And one of the things that I've been saying to them since the very beginning is I always say to them, the most dangerous words in the English language are, it will be fine. And what I mean by that is when anyone ever did something stupid, the last thing that they said was, it'll be fine before they jumped off the bridge, before they did drugs. And so they were busting me about that. But it's nice that they're listening. I love the idea of the text messages, but then you took it further. You put it in a book for all of us. Yeah, because I think what I want to do is, again, school is just starting right now. And so if you have a senior, obviously, I think the things in my book are great. But just be intentional about telling your child things you want them to know. And it's to your point about one of the things that the dadism that I share all the time was the idea of just show up. Opportunity follows availability. And I look at my girls and their careers and the things that they're doing, and they literally quote it back to me. Dad, I showed up. Dad, I showed up. And kind of to you, you're going, dang. Yeah, he listened, yeah. I mean, they were on me for about an hour, Jeff. I mean, the worst four-letter word in the English language is lazy. Started there going, oh. And I'm like, holy crap, they were listening. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think but that's the thing is, I mean, well, you've got 18 years with them, right? So hopefully over the 18 years, something will stick. They joked about it, but we were with our girls a couple weekends ago in D.C. at a wedding. And we were just the five of us were riding around in a van. and, And I mean, they were just beating me mercilessly because <laughs> I needed to go find a pair of socks for the wedding because dad forgot to pack socks. But the others were like, dad, we want to stop at a Wendy's. And they like kept this running tally of how many Wendy's we passed. Hey, dad, there's one up here. I go, that's <laughs> over at Dulles Airport. We're not going to go to Dulles Airport to go to a Wendy's. Well, we could. But the idea that if you intentionally have conversations with your kids, and it's not just as a high school senior, it can't be a Hail Mary like that. But babies, I mean, sure, you talk to parents about this all the time, of the importance of communicating with your children, but elementary school, middle school, as horrible as that is, high school, just lean into them and be so intentional about communicating. One of the things that I tell young dads now is it's really easy to sort of just say, love you, or heart symbol, or whatever it is. I'm like, no, 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 that is not enough. Literally say, I love you you. There's a wild difference between love you and I love you and the intentionality of language and what comes from that is so important. And I think that's the key as parents, as colleagues, as caregivers in a hospital, that you be intentional about what's important and then how you say it. That's wonderfully said. I really love that. The book is great for those of you out there. Basically, the way I see your book is your dad 18 years, like most dads have been doing all these daddyisms, but what a great thing to do then is kind of, this book is a summary. Each page is one daddyism or one piece of advice. I read it on the beach. It was a wonderful book to read on the beach. It's a coffee table book, 
But what I found myself doing is they were all great, but every two or three, you go, oh my God, I say that. I love this one. I'm like dog earing this one. And, and so I think it's a great book. If you do have a high school kid, get the book, make little dog ears. This is the ones that I love to say, this is good. And what an easy read. And a, it's a great coffee table book. I think what it does is it causes you to say, I'm going to say these things to my kid this year. And it's, it's really interesting. We have a mutual friend, Dr. Stephen Treziak, who just wrote this great book called Wonder Drug, where he and his colleagues did just the most research about kind of what comes, you know, optimism and hope and service and all these sort of things. And I was looking back at my book, which is just all these things that I said as a dad, just a normal goofy dad. I'm like, <laughs> there you go. I'm validated by Dr. Tresiak. How about that? He says that what I'm saying is real. And I'm like, I don't know that he would validate me. But the idea is that sort of that intentionality in relationships is so important. And it's work, right? It's work. You got to be intentional, especially as a parent, you know, as a colleague and as, as a boss. Yeah, you can do those things, but, but you're raising these kids and you get this narrow window in the broadest context, this narrow window of time. And it's a finite number of conversations and don't be lazy about them and don't miss the opportunity to be very clear with your kids about what you think is important and what you think is great about them. And here's the common thread that brings us back full circle is being intentional, being a good communicator and being a leader in healthcare and as a parent. And you've been able to put those all together because really all of our lives, our professional, our personal lives get better when people take those times to be intentional communicators. And so whether it's your kid or a patient, that's the whole theme of this. And that's what Jeff Atwood is about. And that's why I'm so honored and happy to know you and to admire your work. It's been really great. Thanks, Tony. It's great. I'm thankful that our paths have crossed. And like with most things that I do these days, I go, thanks to Quint for bringing our lives together. Boy, Quint brings a lot of good people together. I'm so grateful to him. So the book again is called A Need to Know Series Graduates, Little Things That Make a Big Difference. Yeah, it's available anywhere, anywhere online. Great gift for your kids Perfect. when they go to school. Great thing for the holidays. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you so we can put it on the show notes? Email is just jeff at jeffatwood.com. Perfect. So I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're very, very busy. I appreciate it. Everyone, thank you for uh, spending time with Jeff and I. It's been really great and illuminating, and it's just an honor. This show will be available on all the platforms. If you want to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me through the OrsiniWay.com, Dr. Orsini at the OrsiniWay.com. Please encourage, go ahead and download previous episodes. So thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. And thank you again. Thanks, Tony. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review to contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts. Visit us at the The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.